Hey folks, and a very warm welcome to another episode of This Is 8CD. My name is Jerry Scullion, and I'm a human-centered service designer based in the wonderful city of Dublin, Ireland. Today on the show, we've got a real treat. We've got a bit of a story to tell you before we jump into this episode. A number of months ago, I was, you know, browsing around the internet looking for a new sweatshirt, okay? I'm very careful about where I and who I buy my clothes from. And I stumbled across this brand called Sutsu. And today we're going to be speaking to the owner of Sutsu. They've been around since 2004. They're a UK and ethically sourced um, fashion brand, I guess, if you want. But I'm sure John will probably argue that it's not a fashion brand. But it's really, really interesting, okay, the business model behind this this clothing brand. Because they don't create things in bulk, they create things on demand. It's ethically sourced. But what's really interesting is it's pretty reasonably priced. So they are a B Corp, B Corp organization. Um, and we talk a little bit more around the business model and how this works for John. Um, and also how he's seeing the business evolve and how he's seeing more demand for these kind of organizations grow over the last number of years, especially post-pandemic. We touch on that quite a bit. John is a fantastic uh, person. We actually connected and had so much fun in the lead up to this conversation um, that we started to collaborate together. So you might have seen on my LinkedIn a number of months ago that we are going to be doing a collaboration between This Is Hate CD and Sutsu. So full disclaimer there, we, we do have an interest together in terms of like making this collaboration come alive. And I am wearing one of the, not the This Is Hate CD sweatshirts, but this is one of the, the Sutsu brands uh, or one of the Sutsu lines, should I say, that I bought myself that led me to the conversation with John today. Now, before we jump into this episode, um, I want to let you know about the coaching program that um, I launched about 18 months ago on This Is HCD, and we've been having fantastic success working with lots and lots of changemakers all over the world. Why I think my coaching program is a little bit different to other coaching programs out there is you get full access to all of my courses. But we also work at the three different levels that I've kind of created myself that really hone and get you closer to what I believe is your purpose. So we also get to work in your macro, in your daily daily, daily habits, should we say. Um, and it's a really, really great opportunity to, uh, to connect with the broader community through inclusion in change space. Change space, as you might have seen on the website, is a private community, tends to be invite or application only. Um, but anyone who comes on the coaching program with me, we get a chemistry call. So they're automatically granted access to change space. If you are interested in um, finding a design coach, please explore it on thisishcd.com. Set up a chemistry call with me. I'd love to speak with you get to know you and see how we could potentially collaborate together. Before we do that, let's jump straight into this episode with John. It's a great one. I know you're going to love it. So let's go. John, I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. Um, we've been chatting for probably a couple of months at this stage, back and forth in email. Um, but for our listeners, maybe start off and tell them a little bit about yourself, where you're from and what you do. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm John. Um, 
I guess the reason for us chatting is you got in touch regarding Sutsu, which is a clothing label that I run. Yeah. Um, I've had Sutsu in my pocket, more to better description, ever since I was mid 20s. Uh, going back a bit further than that, I ever since I was a kid, I was drawing and creative and stuff like that. And I always wanted to own a clothing label, specifically a surf clothing label. So at the age of 15, I set up Scarecrow Surf Clothing, printed nice. my first T-shirt and sold it to a friend of mine. And I guess the bug stuck. Uh, I kept uh, his, uh, his check because I'm showing my age now, his check for £5 and popped it in a box somewhere, which I've still got somewhere. And um, yeah. and so that bug sort of sat with me. And then uh, fast forward to sort of 24, 25, and yeah, I set up Sutsu as a, I mean, maybe we'll go into this in more detail, as a sort of mm. anti-brand brand clothing, and I can yeah. explain why. Um, but with a positive impact on the environment, that was the kind of underpinning yeah conversation i had with myself that if i was going to do something then it had to have a positive impact um uh, we ran that as a standard clothing business for eight years you know the Mm. wholesale concessions you know outlets that were stocking it and then financial crisis came along lots of shops were going under and it just became an unsustainable model excusing excusing the pun an unsustainable model uh During that period, people were asking me to do design work uh, for them. So I set up a design agency, which is still going today. Um, and then, yeah, lockdown project. Everyone had a lockdown project. And uh, people were still asking for the clothing even sort of eight years later. And so I thought, why not give it a go, put it back up online. Uh, and the same day, people started buying the T-shirts again. And I was like, hold on a minute, what's going on? So, uh, and then we fast forward to now and it's become a, as I was saying earlier, it's a bit of a beast of its own. Yeah. You mentioned this thing, feeding the beast. Yeah. Um, And I use that phrase as well. Um, And we were talking about, just to to preface everything, like I actually got in touch with John um, following up on an order that I made on a sweatshirt from Sutsu that I saw and really liked it. And I was emailing and saying, hey, where is it? Oh, I'm like, I'm waiting. I'm over in Ireland. I'm not a bazillion miles away from you. And you're like, oh, it's getting made. I was like, what do you mean it's getting made? <laughs> I, was like, I, was like, I was like, oh, hang on a second. And I went back into the website and I was like, they make these things by order. And I was like, this is, this is cool. And then we started chatting and I was like, hey, I have a podcast and this is very interesting for me, like, you know, and that's why we're here today. Okay. So, yeah. you know, I said to John last night, I'm going to wear the sweatshirt. I'm not wearing the sweatshirt, but I'll wear it for the intro when I, when I do the recording <laughs> afterwards. I love this sweatshirt. Okay. So much so my wife was like, you have to stop wearing it. Okay. I wore it. And this is, I'm not, I'm not, a, it's not an advertising, by the way, folks. I'm going to put a link to Sutsu. The stuff is really cool but it's anti-brand, okay? And that's what I, I bought into. It's not like in-your-face uh, kind of branding. It's very subtle and it's high-quality stuff. Um, but I do have a question for you on the high-quality stuff. The the kind of tension that I was mentioned to you before around, you, t- you mentioned a, a Rode microphone. Yeah. And um, When you're getting started and doing any of these kind of endeavors, like podcasting or music, whatever it is, you kind of want to limit the amount of money that you spend in case you don't 
fulfill it or continue with that hobby. You end up buying something that maybe in six months' time you might throw out. Versus it would have been more financially uh, beneficial to have bought the microphone that was going to last you for 20 years or 50 years in some of these microphones cases. What can we do about that tension? Because I see that feeding into your brand okay, with Sutsu that you pay a little bit more for a sweatshirt and I treat it a lot more carefully. I'm like, okay, this is, you know, it's not super cheap. It's not, in my mind, ridiculously expensive. It's somewhere in, in the kind of the middle to the top. Um, what can we do? Is that a, the right approach to, to really thinking about these things in terms of paying a little bit more and it lasting, lasting longer? Is that yeah, I, that think, I, th- I think from my point of view, I've always been a believer of, you know, I grew up in a household where my parents would wax lyrical about the fact that they'd owned the same Hoover for 30 years or a, a fridge freezer that is, you know, emitting yeah. more emissions than is reasonably suitable, but it's been going for 50 years. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I guess I grew up in a place whereby everything was built to last. And this this idea that, you know, planned obsolescence or of certain items, I mean, clothing's a bit different in that way. I think it's fundamentally disgraceful. But yeah, uh, in terms of clothing, look, it's like you said, it's a counterbalance between price versus quality. So you can, I guess, what I've done more of recent is accept that there is a ceiling to a price point that people are willing to pay for a certain brand's quality and or items and or brand equity. So. By that, I mean, if we were Patagonia, then naturally you can add in X percentage more because people are buying into Patagonia. And I do question whether the perceived quality of Patagonia is any more than the perceived quality of Sutsu, but because there is that added brand equity of a bigger brand, actually the the garment can be the same garment, but actually it doesn't matter because you've got Patagonia attached to it. I shouldn't probably use them as a yeah. benchmark, but um, so what we do is I try and cover in the costing of a product. We we will take a hit on the margin in order to give a better product to our consumer. Hmm. That's that's a personal choice. It's you know there there will be thousands of CEOs probably screaming at me, going, "What on earth are you doing? That's a ridiculous concept to make a business successful." But yeah. Frankly, I wouldn't sleep well at night if I couldn't feel like I could produce a better quality of garment that lasts for 10 years, right? So the ideal is we have customers coming back to us and we do have this saying, oh, look, I've got this, you know, I bought it eight years ago. It's now getting holes in the sleeves. Can you do me another one? And that's, to me, the solution, right? It's the fact that people are willing to, A, wear the designs, but B, wear them out, you know, excusing the pun such that the quality of a product lasts. Now, we're not, we do have product. I mean, like I'm I'm fully transparent, both personally and also in the business, in that we've had challenges with that. We've had printing issues that have gone wrong. We've got embroidery Mm. issues that go wrong. And part of that model is a bit of a challenge to make that work. Yeah. So that the quality of the project is ongoing and lasting. 
We had Florian Bailey on the podcast a couple of months ago, who is one of the co-owners of Etz, a two-star Michelin restaurant right. in Nuremberg in Germany. And one of the things that he explained was they they sell tickets for a dinner yeah. six months down the line. And I thought that was really, really cool. He says, because then we're able to be more financially stable and we're able to go back to the farmers and our suppliers and share the risk. Yeah. Uh, share the risk with the with the ingredients providers, so people who the farmers who rear the pigs and so forth. Is that a similar model, a similar kind of like framework that you're leaning into as well, where you are so transparent that you explain these things to the customers that we're trying out a new process or so forth? Tell us a little bit more about that, if if that's the case. Yeah, I mean, it is to a degree. It's slightly different to a restaurant in that we're obviously not. We don't have a sort of subscription model in that way because people don't subscribe to buying clothes or they don't yet. Um, I think for us, our transparency comes in our pricing model in that we will publicize on the website exactly how much each part of the garment costs, what margin we take, what goes to the big bad wolf, the Batman, um, and then what what we're left up with in the pot at the end of the day. So it allows a consumer to go, oh, okay, well, they can make a judgment call on whether actually £48 for a sweatshirt seems like a reasonable value because you will naturally get pushback from customers going, oh, it's too expensive. Oh, I don't think the quality is good enough relative to the price. Oh, I can go and get an H&M sweatshirt for half the price. I don't see the value in it. And you're like, well, okay, let's just take some context into that. And the context is without calling out certain big brands, they are yeah. produced. They are overproducing so much that really? the pressure on the environment is so big. I mean, fashion is an incredibly dirty industry. Yes, we're part of that. But what we're trying to do in a small way is go. Okay, how can we mitigate our impact on yeah. a the environment, b natural resources, c emissions, but also then being able to, without being fully tree huggery about it, you yeah. know educate a consumer, give a consumer all the tools they can choose to make an educated decision on whether they want to buy yeah. the clothes. Now you've got within that lots of different consumers. You've got the consumer that's seen it on Instagram, clicks by, doesn't read any of the information and then will have a go at you if something's not right. Or go... <laughs> Where's my sweatshirt? Where's my sweatshirt? Uh, did you read every product page and all the email confirmation? impression yeah yeah but the thing is you can put it in thousands of different places you can put it on the header of the website you can put it on every product page you can put the information in the email confirmation but people because they're so busy now Hmm. i heard a statistic recently that said that in one single day now i don't believe i don't know whether this is true or not but in one single day we as human beings now absorb the same amount of information in one day as we would as a lifetime even as early as the victorian times yeah so we are absorbing so much so you take that to someone purchasing a sweatshirt or a t-shirt or a load of clothes and even with the best will in the world with all the information on the website they still don't engage with it but then you have the other consumers that will fully engage with it and then they will start to look at it feedback on it give you information on it tell you in reviews how good it was or how bad it was you know like so you've got that yeah. So to your point, podcasts and stuff like that. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. See, we wouldn't be here otherwise, would we? Um, but can like, we, can we go 
Can we go back to something you said there a second ago, John, about the the fashion industry being incredibly dirty? Okay. So I have a a limited understanding about what you mean by that. Um, And I'm, I like to think I'm pretty well read, but I'd love to hear your perspective on uh, what you mean by that. I mean, there are lots of angles by it, and by no means am I sort of a... Squeaky clean. Sorry, what was that? Squeaky clean. Squeaky clean. Well, no, I wasn't going to say that, but fair enough. <laughs> uh, I think any business within fashion isn't squeaky clean, but what you can do is you can provide the consumer a better option, right? And that's all we're trying to do. I think the problem I've got with is overconsumption. Fundamentally, the consumer, and it doesn't have to be fashion, every industry is fueled by the consumer's need, which therefore in turn creates businesses. Those businesses in turn need to create profit. In order to create profit, they need to produce product. In order to produce product, they need consumers. So it becomes this very... Feed the beast. Yeah, feed the beast. And this might be the name of the uh, name of the podcast, Feed the Beast. Um, <laughs> But in fashion, the problem is, is that most uh, traditional brands will overstock. So what they'll do is they'll go, mm-hmm. okay, we've got a new design. We are going to buy 100,000, a million units. Now, how many of those million units do they end up selling? Yeah. But also, what, what impact has those million units put on the environment? Because they've had to farm it. They've had to fact, you know, make it in a factory. They've they've obviously supplied, you know, all the other bits that go with it, all the cotton, all the zips, all the buttons, everything else. So there's lots of stuff going on there. Then they've got to ship it from wherever else is in the world. Then they've got to store it, the electricity and everything like that. So I won't name the brand, but many years ago, a friend of mine worked for a large global brand and his job was to go and basically his first job in the door was to go and clear out 12 million pounds worth of dead stock that was just sitting in two warehouses in a country doing nothing now if you take that as one brand and you do it across every single brand that we know of there will be so much wastage and that's the problem right so our point about made making to order is that if we can at least make to order it means that we're not we're not, we don't have a warehouse, we don't have extra electricity, we don't have extra, any utilities, we're not holding dead stock, yeah. we're not going to put that dead stock to charity or burn it in a hole in Africa, you know, whatever people choose to do with their stock. So I guess that's, that's fundamental in the fashion industry. Yeah. Then you add into that issue, you know, the treatment of workers, workers' fair wages, Yeah. you know, and I interestingly... Like, I will always respond to the naysayers. Like, if I see something or someone's calling us out on Facebook or Instagram, I'll take the time to write back to them, but I'll write back to them in a considered way. Mm. And they were, the argument was around whitewashing, um, which is obviously a term that I hadn't heard of until they used it. And I was like, what do you mean by whitewashing? And they were like, well, basically, as a Western brand or Western society, you are using third world country people to make profit fundamentally Mm. and that's quite a hard challenge to push back on because fundamentally in some ways they're right you know we are using people on lower wages to provide products so that we can sell and and or make a profit 
the way that I would argue back against that is actually, well, for us as Sutsu, you know, we not only provide a fair wage, so we are, you know, we are joined into a foundation that provides a fair wage, but also all the other stuff we do alongside that, whether that's planting two trees for every order, we offset, we double, double offset all carbon emissions, we give we commit to 20% of our profits going to charity, et cetera, et cetera. Look, it's not for me to sit here and sort of promote the brand, but the argument that you have against all of these people is, well, actually, hold on. All of these views are fair and right, but they do not take into the context of the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is actually brands doing good are actually a positive benefit to the environment because actually they, without them existing, you wouldn't be able to deliver charitable funds, putting yeah. forest back into the, the world, whatever it may be that you do. So, yeah. So let's talk about um, the business model behind this. Okay. So yeah. where are the products getting made just, just for transparency? So uh, we have two factories currently, one in India and one in Bangladesh. Okay. Um, both how, are... How do you maintain the fair, the fair wages? So those factories or suppliers are well-established suppliers that have been uh, accredited for a long time. So we, like, <laughs> it's a funny thing. So any kind of this certification thing is... The B Corp. You part uh, of B Corp. Yeah, we're, we're B Corp certified. We're, climate, we're soon to be climate neutral certified. We have our supply chain accredited by a third party that does all that accreditation bit for us. Yeah. Uh, well, we're actually accredited by two other parties as well. So the thing with that, I'm sure you've heard the statement greenwashing. Yeah. So quite often we'll get an email going, where are your clothes made? What are you doing about the environment? Or something like that. So you have to go through this whole process of saying, well, okay, these are the certifications. These are accredited by these various people because you anyone can create a certificate. But what you have to do is these days you have to be much more um we just have to be much clearer on what those certificates are yeah and where they come from and how they've been validated mm -hmm. um and so yes look we do have factories in india we do have factory in bangladesh our factory in india is 90 percent reduced emissions okay so uh, every garment that comes out there is relative to a your sweatshirt is had ninety percent less emissions than a, a, a equal example, for example. So yeah. So with that in mind, um, talk about B Corp because some some people aren't aware of B Corp. I know when I was in Australia, it was a lot more prominent. Yeah. B Corp may are they based in Australia? Actually, no, they're American originally. So interestingly, what does B Corp mean? I mean, fundamentally, in, in its very basic form, it's about doing better for people and planet. So the idea that everything that you do within the business is taken into consideration, both the people that work for you, the third party workers that work on behalf of your organisation and or the planet yeah. as well. And it's not a final, like once you become B Corp certified, it's not a finality. So you have to prove each year that you are continuing to do that. You also have the opportunity to improve your score rating based upon uh, implementations you do. But what B Corp does for us is it's 
it's a it's a part a rite of passage in that because the brand is the way the brand is, we need to have the the stamp, I suppose, the stamp yeah. of approval from B Corp. But it's also an ability for us to be able to stop the naysayers. Mm. Now, like you said, it was quite big in Australia. It's quite big in the UK and the US. In certain yeah. European countries, it doesn't really have a huge amount of status okay. yet. Mm. But, and also there are, there are some challenges with it. There are some people that feel that it is a negative. Like I, yeah. like it's weird for me to say that, right? Because most people are like, oh my God, it's amazing you've got B Corp. And your immediate reaction is, yes, well, it is a good thing. But with this, uh, they class it as debanking, right? Um, which is basically putting pressure on people to uh, only work with certain types of the demographic of society now okay. you might believe them to be conspiracy theorists but it's interesting that no matter what you do to try and be better as a brand there are always those that will want to have a pop and whilst b corp is fundamentally a power for good it is it is interesting the experience that we have interacting with consumers or potential consumers and yeah you know, we are very proud to be called B Corp. And my experience of B Corp today is that they put no pressure on you to, you know, have certain demographics within your business. Yes, yeah. there are points given if you are female founded or you are minority founded, which yeah. I guess is their way of trying to help those lesser communities get a foot up in, in because, you know, commercial business is fundamentally run by the same type of people absolutely can i ask you a little bit more around um just going back to that feeding the beast thing yeah um as the organization and sutsu grows i know you're running a design agency alongside it mm. how do you prevent it um from not getting too big and how do you resist the temptation to keep growing and keep feeding the beast like are, are there some sort of uh, values that are personal or organizationally driven to ensure that that doesn't happen i think i'm permanently mindful of the fact that the industry as a whole is a is a is a damaging industry uh, mm. so therefore no matter what we do if we are growing then our impact is also growing on the environment mm. and so therefore how do we offset that against the consumer need for new product yeah uh, I guess you're never going to stop the consumer, that that consumer beast, in that you're yeah. constantly feeding the beast. Um, but I guess being able to control it, it's a very fine line between. Obviously, there's a purpose to this, which is growing, because we have yeah. to. Otherwise, it becomes a sort of a lifestyle brand. The lifestyle brand, yeah, very good way of describing it. And the lifestyle yeah. brands are all well and good, but they don't. I can't do good with a lifestyle brand. What I can yeah. do is if we can grow it in a considered approach, then actually it doesn't mean that we're going to do any more impact. It simply means that we will pay our dues in a different way. So that's part of why I'm, we're becoming climate neutral. Uh, and this is an interesting topic, whether you, we go further yeah. into it or not, but the way that climate neutral works is that you will pay into uh, 
a fund based upon your carbon emissions. Now, at a very top level, you do a, you know, you do a data chart, you do an Excel spreadsheet, you give all how many units you've sold, how much average, you know, emissions each product is, then they give you a total and then you offset that with a, uh, you know, with a, with a payment to mm. support local causes, you know, whether that's supporting local farmers, planting trees, planting mangroves, planting, you know, uh, beach grass, whatever it is, you know, support yeah. it. But what's interesting about that is because our one of our factories is ninety percent carbon neutral, we're sure. not getting we're not getting the benefit of that. So I'm actively paying into a fund ninety percent more than I would or should do. But that is my way of counterbalancing our growth. Okay. So I it, it sits with me in a way whereby yes, I'm overpaying, but actually that will allow. This doesn't allow me to sleep at night because I'm still producing the garments, but because we're doing as much as we can to mitigate the impact on the environment, if I'm overpaying into that into that fund or into the beast, then all, all well and be it. And, yeah. You know. So imagine if um, you go on Dragon's Den, okay? You're on Dragon's yeah. Den. You, you have, I think they're one of those uh, Theo... Um, he has some sort of fashion brand. He's he's part of the, part of the fashion conglomerate, yeah. um, and they say to you, "Look, you know, we we can make a load of money. We we can stock sutsu. Yeah. Is it possible for you, with the current business model, the way it's situated and the way it's positioned, mm. to to do those kind of things? Uh, no, and I'd probably choose not scale. to. Yeah, you choose not to. Yeah. So coming out the back of a traditional model, as we did. Yeah. I had a conversation with a, uh, one of our bigger retailers a couple of years later, and he, he was sort of saying, well, you know, we did discuss trying to help and, you know, almost the taking, taking the brand on and stuff like that, but it was too much risk. And at that point, I was like, yeah, it makes sense because, you know, you've got to buy stock, you, you know, you have the sampling season, you have the stock season, you know, all of that mm. sort of stuff. And he said, but look, you know, if you can find a way to to bring the brand back we'll always stop it because it did really well for us and this was this was in a meeting for another brand it was a food and drinks brand but we were having this discussion and it was sort of on the side whispering to each other and i was like well the only way i do it is no risk and by yeah. no risk i mean holding no stock so i said the only way it would work is if you commit to a certain order value and we will produce to order and that's where that whole concept came out of so okay so it came out of a conversation around a, around a meeting table about a completely different brand. And actually, mm. any stockist that we do have, and we don't have many, um, yeah. is based on, on that proviso in that you will buy and you will pay for it up front and then we will, we will mm. make to that order. And that is as simple as that. Yeah, and that makes sense. Like you know, So it allows you to be able to do those things, reduces the risk, which probably results in a, a lower price point for the, the customer because you're not kind of including that in the costs. So no, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um on that point, the transparency piece, uh I absolutely love it. I remember seeing it a year a couple of years ago at a conference in Toronto where a hotel in Newfoundland, uh it's on an island off the coast of Canada, it's Newfoundland, um, where they they basically have a 
price tag that shows exactly where yeah. the cost of the hotel and yeah. you know, what's going on, what profit is. What is that? And why is that so empowering for the consumer to see those things? I'd love to get your perspective on it. I think for me personally, as a consumer and also as brand owner, is that sounds probably a bit negative, but I think we've been hoodwinked too long. Yeah. I think, you know, even if you take an iPhone or a piece of clothing, a Rode road microphone, or a road microphone, as we were discussing earlier, the margin that people mark up on ironically is based upon the size of the business that they get to um, because they're holding stock because they've got more staff because they've got bigger premises because they've got all of these other things that are feeding into the beast as we're going to use this phrase mm. they actually the price ends up going bigger so that margin has to be big enough to accommodate all of yeah. those added values the benefit for us is that because we keep our operating costs quite small mm. and quite linear in a way whereby it doesn't, you know, like we could sell five times what we're selling now and fundamentally the team wouldn't have to grow significantly yeah. to feed that. It allows us to keep quite a competitive price point. I think in terms of the transparency piece, because I find myself going off track quite a lot, is that <laughs> like if I want to buy a piece of clothing, I want to know how much it's cost. Right? Yeah. So I don't want like I I and this is an interesting part of this. I recently bought a hoodie from a brand that I admire a lot. Ooh, tell not, us. I'm not saying it because the rest of the conversation, the rest of the conversation doesn't go too well. Um, so I bought it and I've been thinking about it for ages. And you know, I was in a, in a location on in Cornwall and it was available there. And I said to my other half that look, I I, I really want to get this. It, but it's really expensive. And she was like, well, why don't you get it? And uh, so I was like, fine. I bought it and I put it through one wash. Oh, I didn't tell the no. guy. And honest to God, I know I roll my sleeves up and I wear them like this, but having had it a wash, it had gone from, it shrunk that much. So on my wrist, it had shrunk that much. And this was a 90, 100 pound hoodie. What? And I was like, I can't wear it again. I just, it's, it, it, it makes me look like I'm wearing a child's hoodie. Uh, and the, the hems went and stuff like that. And so I guess I got really frustrated. I get really frustrated with a brand overcharging. So that, like, if you walked into the shop, it was probably one of the more expensive hoodies on in the shop. Mm -hmm. And yet the quality of it and the size shaping and all of that sort of stuff isn't worth the money. Yeah. And so I'm like, how do they justify putting such a high price tag on a product that is so bad? Yeah, and and look, we you know I reckon if there were consumers of ours listening to this that have had print peeling issues that we've had that issue, they would argue. Well, I could say that about Sutsu, but what I could argue back to them is, if you get in touch with us, we will always replace it, and we will ask you yeah. to give that product that is damaged to a home local homeless charity. Yeah. So why was that hoodie? Um, what was wrong with it? Do you think? Was was there a quality issues regards the the sourcing of cotton or how it was manufactured? And also, did you did you reach out to the manufacturers and? No, I'm very work? bad with that. I sort of give them a one chance for, and a write off straight away. So, would I buy from that brand again? The answer is no. But then that's not fair because I'm not given the opportunity for them yeah. to resolve it, especially considering what I just said about Sutsu and you know, yeah. replacing them. Uh, in terms of the quality. 
I don't know. I think part of it is the shape that they chose. So, you know, mm. how they've designed the hoodie. So the arms are maybe too short. I don't think I'm a gorilla, but maybe I've got really long arms. I don't know. But, uh, uh, do, do you think there's um, a way to, like, how, how can someone counteract that? So if they're going to buy an expensive hoodie that they know it's going to last for a long time. Because yeah. Most people, like the, the counter argument of what I was saying earlier, like if you're starting a podcast or yeah. getting into music and you buy the cheaper microphone and they, they take that advice and say, like, I'm going to buy the, the more expensive hoodie because it's going to last forever. Yeah. Is there a way for them to kind of uh, understand that this is actually quality? I know we're talking about Sutsu and, you know, I, I can testify the stuff is, is lovely. Um, Thanks very much. <laughs> invoices in the post yeah, joke folks yeah. not getting paid for this um but how do how do consumers know that uh, well they don't fundamentally yeah fundamentally they don't they help they, there's a risk there's a huge risk uh yeah. and to your point i was thinking about it that cheap versus you know cheap you buy twice i can't remember what yeah. the saying is but cheap you buy twice which yeah. is so true right you will but how do you know as a podcaster or a musician or an mm. artist or a designer or whatever you may choose that you're going to continue that profession or continue that yeah. hobby? You're not going to go out and spank a thousand pounds on a Les Paul Gibson when you've only yeah. just started playing guitar. You're going to buy an Epiphone or you're going to buy, you know, a cheap, mm. cheap one. So it's hard. But, and it comes back to that same point of consumerism, isn't it? Consumerism mm. feeds the production beast and also the commerciality beast. We are our own worst enemies in that yeah. we are, but, but then people argue, like we have naysayers on, on various social media platforms saying, well, sustainability, the only way to be sustainable is to buy secondhand. And again, mm. back to my point earlier, is that's the context. That well, it's the context they're missing, right? So without buying into new stuff, you don't allow the opportunities for businesses to be better. You know, whether that's yeah. us, who do various things for environment and charity or, you know, other brands that do stuff just simply yeah. because they choose to. But on that whole kind of the the guitar piece or the microphone piece, mm. there's always a resell potential. Like if you're buying a car, you can resell it. A guitar, you can resell it. Yeah. Where are the opportunities there for products like clothing, um, expensive garments? to be resold because i know some businesses i think h&m now on, on the high street allow you to bring the, your clothes back and then they get recycled yeah i don't know much about how true that is but and that's the thing is there right? a, yeah so like the, the authenticity and like there's a really uh, i mentioned joe mcleod who um wrote a book about ends yeah the end of the life cycle piece there's a really uh great argument there around improving the transparency about these things like what actually happens is there a case there for um, bigger brands to be able to take the product back and then offer a, you know, uh, an opportunity for other people to buy secondhand clothes? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two things there. There's one that full closed loop system, yeah. which uh, or the recycling of the fabrics. So uh, there are people or there are companies in play that do that. Mm. A bit like your point about H and M, I. I query the authenticity of and and or the transparency of if X garment was sent to Y supplier, recycling supplier, mm. where does 
it end up? Where does the cotton end up? And how do we how do we validate that journey to make sure that yeah. actually it ends up back in the place that you need it to place? But also, yeah. interestingly, how much does that emission impact the environment? So it's yeah. all well and good being able to do that. recycle it, but what is that emission value? Mm. um on the environment and does that whole process of it being shipped there produced then shipped somewhere else then produced then back to you actually create a higher emissions value than actually purchasing a organically farmed it counteracts everything yeah and it's a very hard line to justify validate authenticate authenticate and all those sort of things i think for a consumer there is there are startups starting to look at ways whereby uh, i actually am a part owner of a mother brand which is a recycled sunglasses brand and they approached that brand saying look we run a sort of facilitate an app that people can put the products onto to then up upcycle and then they get yeah. a discount off the next purchase from you Okay. Yeah. So there are, you know, like, are you have to believe in the human will of wanting yeah. to be better, yeah. because only by that will we be better. I think. Personally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what what I really love about um, the work that you're doing here is you are a change maker. So like, it's not about following the status quo, following the blueprint and how to uh, create a brand yeah. and selling it and growing it you are making a change for the better. Um, obviously, it's not 100% perfect, but like very few businesses are. But there's this underlying purpose behind what you're doing. Um, and it's really, really refreshing to hear and have the transparency with somebody like yourself who's doing these things. So what's the future looking like for Sutsu? Um, wh- where do you want to take the brand? And what are the ambitions for you personally uh, to see that through i mean i think it's restricted in some ways by the ability to grow without mm. uh, having a negative impact on the environment so the, the counterbalance of those two things have to be considered no matter how far or how big you want to grow the brand now you know in the world of consumerism in the world of money in the world of protecting your family or yourself in the future there is a part mm. of me that's obviously looking to exit the brand yeah at some point now the problem with that is that you have to find the right person to or people Pass to entrust to. the brand to mm. uh and there, like i years ago i heard about the difference between i guess the western way of creating a brand and the japanese way of creating a brand so japanese mm. You know, we look about a 10-year process. So we look for a brand's lifespan to be 10 years. Japan look for its past generations. So it's almost like, what does the brand look like in 100 years? Mm. And how how do we get the brand to keep going in its current trajectory for another 100 years? And that's, I guess, maybe where I will inevitably try and get the brand, is that if I'm not the custodian of it, at least the groundwork that I've done, the brand ethos, the design ethos, the the quality ethos, the transparency, whatever it may be, continues going forward, whether I'm involved or not. And I think that's the the challenge that I have. Okay. Well, look, um, 
I'm a huge fan of the, the nice. stuff. Um, I put a link to um, Sutsu in the show notes. And what I, I guess for people who are interested in service design um, and people out there who are interested in business design, this is a really good case study for, for people to look at. You know, kind of, you can hear the ethos and the, the purpose coming through in John's voice and why and how he's doing these things. So, John, um, if people want to follow you, uh, I know you're, you're kind of growing on, on Instagram, which, by the way, I saw um, Louis Theroux. Yeah, yeah. Before we hop off, do you want to tell us a little bit about? Um, there's an interesting story there that we we spoke about before. Uh, I'd ordered it, and then I saw that Louis Theroux was wearing it, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Because <laughs> I'm a huge Louis Theroux yeah. fan. Oh, we all. How did how did this all come about? Like you know, so like like in the modern day of uh, influences, you, you, you know, you would desperately. It's weird, right? Sorry, I'm sort of rambling, but no. um, I wouldn't have ever put Louis on the list, right? So if I'd put the top 10 people that we wanted to wear the brand. Jerry Scullion. It was, you were number one. <laughs> uh, um, but the thing is, it's not because I didn't think of him. It's just because I didn't think of him as a brand wearer because yeah. I just didn't expect it. So we did nothing like yeah suddenly someone on instagram went you do know louis wearing your clothing and i was like what yeah and like if you could choose any person to wear sutsu he was perfect even though i hadn't yeah. thought of him or would have put him on a list so it's this really weird conversation around well actually he's the perfect person but why the hell yeah. didn't i think of him yeah. but anyway so we obviously got these photos in we got people commenting on it and so I sent a newsletter out going, I don't know how the hell this has happened, but Louis is wearing our clothes. And this is, this is the product and this is what it is. Because people kept sort of trying to, Ask trying to find it. Yeah, I mean, if, yeah. You, if you Google it back in, when it happened, there were people on, I can't remember that um, Mother's Network thing, you know, like Mummy's thing, quite a big famous one. Okay. It's like a forum. Someone had actually put, Louis, Louis wearing this top. How do I find the brand or something like that? Yeah, and so like people had had this conversation on this mum's mum's net, mum's net. Yeah, I think that's what it's called. Yeah, and that, like I was like, this is just weird. So anyway, we put the newsletter out. We put anyway. So someone got in touch on Instagram, DM'd us, and said, "Oh, that was me. I'm his uh, sister-in-law. I gave it to him as a secret Santa present, oh. and that was it." And so all it was that she gave it to him he loved it and he chose to wear it on his spotify podcast thing and i was like I yeah when he was launching his podcast i couldn't ask for anything better so we simply said to this lady do you think he would accept a present to say thanks we just want to send him a few other items and with no expectation of him ever wearing yeah. anything again but it felt like the right thing to do he was kind enough to wear it on a quite a big press tour and so we thought well why not and so we sent she said yes i'm sure uh we sent him a few t-shirts and then ended up being on the gq awards and we're like i don't believe you really <laughs> yeah yeah and it's just what and interestingly we had a conversation with someone else that works in tv and it's a presenter and he said the reason it works is because of the anti-brand thing yeah in yeah. that you don't have any brand logos you don't have a massive you know suits yeah. across the chest and because in tv and film you can't wear anything with a branded logo on it it works yeah and so, absolutely and so that's kind of i guess how it came about 
another person who when I when I first saw the brand, I was like, actually, this is kind of like very Ben Howard. You know, Ben Howard. I the, do. I've followed him for years. Yeah. 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 I mean, like, it, it just seems like part of that whole kind of Cornwall surfing um kind of culture that kind of seems to to live around there like you know so if anyone's into ben howard make sure you go to the sutsu website <laughs> on, uh, oats in the water or something in the background you, yeah. you'll get an idea of the brand that i'm trying to trying to paint the picture of but look john i'm a huge believer in what you're doing and uh nice. i kind of hat tip to you and uh challenging the, the conventions and how you're going about business it's great. Um, I know I've already put the uh, the request into my to my wife for Christmas. Uh, <laughs> a few few more items, maybe one or two more. I don't want to be buying too much stuff. I really watch what I buy from a brand perspective, and it's really good to know that um, you know there's a consciousness there about uh, how you're running the business. So keep it up. I'll put a link to your Instagram on uh, in the show notes and yeah. also to the website as well. Um, but if there's any, anything else you ever want to come back on and talk about, please just let me know. Yeah, I would love to. Yeah, whenever you'll have me. If I haven't totally made a hash of this one. <laughs> <laughs> You've been brilliant. Charles, right. thanks so much. No worries. Take it easy. Mm-hmm.